You know, I've, I've met a lot of people over my short time here on this planet. A lot of weird people, a lot of nice people, some not so nice. But I've, I have yet to meet a person who enjoys being wrong. I don't think I've ever met a person that when you talk to them and they're wrong, you're in an argument, and at the end of the argument, they're like, oh, I'm so happy I was corrected. Because now I can learn from my mistakes, and I don't know anyone like that. So if you meet someone like that, maybe you can show me. But I don't think anyone really enjoys being wrong. In fact, when you know that you're wrong, it almost causes you to run away. You don't want to confront that person anymore. Suddenly, when you've lost the argument, it's like you shut down and you, want to, you don't want to even see them anymore. I remember, actually today, I was talking to a friend, and he reminded me of a time that I was a little stuck up. We were driving back from, I think it was Delaware, Pennsylvania, a couple years ago. And as we're driving back, it was late at night. It's probably around midnight at this time. And I'm always using the GPS because that's the way that I get home. You can see the traffic. It's a beautiful thing. So as we're using the GPS to get home, suddenly he diverts from the course and he decides to take a different path. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, this is the way I always take. And I said, well, we're gonna, it's gonna add on an extra 20 minutes. And he says, so what? What do you mean, so what? An extra 20 minutes for no reason at all when you could take a shorter path? What's wrong with you? And he's like, well, I'm the one who's driving, so I'm gonna drive this way because I always drive this way. But the way that you're driving is wrong. And that's why you should go the shorter path. And he didn't wanna listen. And so the whole way, I am mad. It's close to midnight. I'm thinking about all the things I could do with my extra 20 minutes. I could be watching Pokemon reruns or something on the internet. And then we get home, and it was only like an extra five minutes to go that way. So I'm bitter. I'm mad. I give him $10 for gas. And he says, oh, dude, you didn't have to do that. And I said, no, no, listen, you don't understand. I was going to give you $20 if you went the right way, but you went the wrong way, so here's $10. <laughs> so kind of a jerk. <laughs> Nobody enjoys being wrong. All of us, deep down inside, there's something, when we are wrong, it's something embarrassing. But why? Why is it embarrassing to be wrong? Maybe you're in an argument with friends, or maybe you're making a bet, you're arm wrestling someone, and it's the scrawny kid that wins, and you're just like, oh, it's just so, you're full of shame, you know? Maybe it's a pull-up contest, and then the girl beats you, and you're a guy that's got a lot of muscles, and you're just like, I'm a, I'm a man, that's okay, there's nothing... Nothing wrong with that, losing to a five-year-old girl. Nothing wrong with that at all. Why is that? I think oftentimes what makes it embarrassing is that we have a lot of pride. A lot of pride. A lot of us aren't willing to admit that we're wrong because it's like an intellectual battle. By you losing, by you being wrong, it's like that person's smarter than you, that person's better than you, that person's stronger than you, and you're really a nobody. I think what makes it even more difficult is when the person that you're arguing with isn't credible or isn't trustworthy. So imagine a, a case of scenario where a doctor is talking to a patient and you've walked in and the doctor says, oh, you probably have a cold. And the patient says, no, I went on WebMD and I'm pretty sure I'm dying. So the doctor is kind of offended because he went through medical school, spent a lot of money, all to have this patient say, I went on Google and I just found out what I really have. 
Especially when you have so much misinformation out there, right? You're in an argument with friends, the first thing you do is you go to Google, because Google has all the answers. Or maybe you're arguing with a younger sibling, and it's like the most embarrassing thing if your younger sibling is right and you're wrong. Or parents, you can't trust parents, or especially Christians. I mean, who trusts Christians anymore? Well, here's the problem. Pride can keep us from the truth. Pride can keep us from the truth. And the longer you refuse to be wrong, it'll be the longer that you'll walk in ignorance. The longer amount of time that we refuse to accept the truth, it can actually be harmful to the way that we live. Let me give you an example. So let's say that you are refusing to believe that smoking cigarettes is bad for you. You refuse to believe it. Well, the truth is, it is bad for you. They don't just put that label on the cigarette box for nothing. And eventually, if you refuse to believe it, you could develop lung cancer or whatever else. Or maybe you've been hearing rumors that the person that you're in a relationship with has been talking, talking to other people. And you refuse to believe, oh, they would never do that to me. But then the longer you believe, if it actually happens to be true, the longer that you walk in ignorance, and therefore, the more it'll hurt when you find out the truth. I, I can't believe I didn't trust my friends when they told me, when they warned me. So many people told me, why didn't I listen? Well, the book of Proverbs, it says in chapter 14, verse 12, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So here's a question that I want to open up with this evening. What if, what if you have been going down the wrong path all your life? What if the way that you've been living is actually positioned wrongly? How would you even know? It seems like a lot of people have a lot of passion, a lot of zeal. And as you kind of hang out with different friends, they'll talk about what they're passionate about. Sports. Yes, some people are actually passionate about schoolwork or academics, getting to a prestigious academic institution so they can one-up the next kid, so they can beat the next kid, so they can come out on top or have a good reputation. The YouTube video that got shared a billion times and you're telling all your friends about what you are passionate about. But how do you know that what you're passionate about is the right thing to be passionate about? You see, in the book of Proverbs, it was written by this guy named Solomon. He was the third king of Israel, and actually he was one of the wisest men that have ever lived. If you Google his name and you go on Wikipedia, it would say that, according to Wikipedia, that he lived from 970 BC to 931 BC. And people from all over the world would come and hear his wisdom as he spoke over 3,000 Proverbs. And as he would speak these words of wisdom, People would come from all over to hear him talk about birds, about critters, about ways to live their life. And so just look at the, appreciate this ancient text for a second. One of the wisest people that had ever lived. And let's hear what he has to say in verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 1. It says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a, a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. 
to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So very clearly, he starts off the book of Proverbs saying, hey, the, the whole reason why I'm writing this is found in verses two through four. It's so that young people, people of all ages, people from all, the, all over the world, but especially the young, would know wisdom and instruction. They would know how to live their life and not make the same mistakes. And so he actually starts off by saying, listen, I'm writing you this book so you would know the right way to go. But a wise person, a person who's really smart, who understands how to live their life, will first and foremost be teachable. That's why he says in verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase learning. In other words, it is actually a very wise thing to be willing to listen to wise people. Do you believe that? I think most of us do. We believe that some things in life are better experienced after getting the advice of a wiser, older person. Perhaps as you're taking a college class or you're applying for a class after you leave here in high school, you go around, rate my professor, and you're kind of gaining the wisdom collectively of all the people that have taken the class before. Or maybe you're trying to get a good job. Maybe you're working, you're 17, it's the first time you're getting a job, and you're asking an older, wiser person, what's the best job to get at this stage of my life? Where it's not gonna be time consuming, but I can still make a lot of money. Or maybe there's a person that you see that's really successful, and they can tell you, hey, listen, like if you do this or you do that, we know one of our kids here, he made like $7,000 when he had a server online for Minecraft, like you can do that. So learning from an older, wiser person can often be helpful. And if for nothing else, all of you know, when you like somebody, it's smarter to talk to an older person or a wiser person, or maybe just even your friends, like you're texting somebody that you like, and then you have your texting committee. You have like five or six people like, all right, this is what she said. What should I say back? I'm like, oh man, you don't want to say that. And then they're like all planning together. So you have like the super text and you send it out. You're like, ah, now she will love me or vice versa. Maybe girls don't do that at all. And it's just guys continuing on. The point is, what if there is ancient wisdom we could learn that would give us insight into life itself? What if it's possible that we don't just need older people or wiser people or people that are smart, but what if there's actually time-tested truths that's found in scripture that will give us insight into the way that we should live? Well, usually what happens is people say things like, don't you know the Bible is outdated? Christians are so out of touch. You know, that's something reserved for the Iron Age. And now we've moved beyond it. Well, this is where we get the theme for the entire series, which is old like logic. Because I would respond by saying this. Yeah, Christianity is old, but it's old like logic. In other words, logic was developed by people like Plato and Aristotle all the way back when. And just because it's old doesn't mean it's outdated. Instead, it could be a time-tested truth that's, that's foundational to the way that we understand the world. In other words, like nobody says the Pythagorean theorem. You know, we've moved beyond it. It's okay, Pythagoras may have invented it, but it's actually something that people still use today, and it's helpful. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's outdated. One plus one still equals two, no matter how far advanced our culture gets. Well, here, when it speaks of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, the Hebrew word actually means being skillful 
in your decisions and in your actions. In other words, kind of like a craftsman or a person who's a sailor. In other words, a Hebrew scholar, Crawford Toy, said this, wisdom, at least as we see in scripture, is the knowledge of right living in the highest sense. And this is why to have wisdom is to be a skillful person that understands how they should live. And this type of person can, like in verse 6, understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. That type of person who's a wise person will boldly confront the hardest questions in life because they're not afraid. They want to learn. And they're not afraid, get this, of being wrong. Instead, they, they say humbly, you know what? I don't have all the answers. And perhaps I'm not going to just listen to what everyone else says about the Bible. I'm actually going to be my own person, read it for myself, and ask myself the question, is this the word of God or is it not? There's nothing wrong in saying that. Why do you have to be a robot programmed by everybody else and listening to what the world's telling you to do? Why don't you just open the Bible yourself and ask, okay, if this really is the word of God, let me read it for myself and see what happens. Nothing wrong with that. If you had the opportunity, let's say that you are a musician. Maybe you play the drums, maybe you play guitar. How many musicians do we have here? Anybody? Musician? Okay, we have a number. Let's say that you had the opportunity to meet with a famous musician, a famous one. Um, Justin Bieber is probably a bad example, but not only is he famous, he's very skilled at what he does. Let's put it that way. Okay. So fill in the blank with any person. I'm not saying Justin Bieber's bad. I'm sorry. But let's say that you have the opportunity to sit down with a famous musician, but you say, Psh, I don't need that. I already got it all myself. I can go on YouTube. You'd be crazy. You'd be out of your mind. All of us, if we had the opportunity to meet with someone who's very skilled in whatever it is that you do, whether you play basketball, you play soccer, whether you're a musician, whether you're an artist, and you have an opportunity to meet with someone who is very skilled at what they do, you'd be a fool not to want to do that. Well, in the very same way, what Solomon is saying here in this proverb is, not only is it wise to sit before wise people, but get this, everyone look up here. If God exists, the wisest thing you can do is sit before the creator of the universe. He made everything. Like he knows all the cheat codes in life, he knows the reason why you were made. He understands all the hard questions. We would be fools not to want to spend time with our maker and creator if he exists. And this is why he says in verse 7, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, a fool, a stupid person, is a person like, I, I got it all together. I don't need to learn anything. And that person would be walking in ignorance. Now, let me clear this up because maybe you're, you're not really sure what this means, the fear of the Lord. And you're thinking, oh, you have to be afraid of God. Like you're afraid of clowns being outside of the woods right now like I am. I'm not afraid. I did think about it a couple times as I was locking up the building. But that's why I have all of you here. So if there's a clown outside, I send you out and I stay behind. That's a joke. Moving on. Fear of the Lord is not the fear of clowns. But fear of the Lord is reverence. So if you just kind of swap those words out, the reverence of the Lord, understanding that you don't have it all, but you're willing to humble yourself before him. And not just the Lord, but specifically 
the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob above any other God, any other system, any other idol. Because what you're going to find in this world is you're going to have conflicting wisdom. But if God created the world, then he is the one that you should consult. So, I mean, this is an interesting question. Whether you believe in God or not, you have to admit that this would be the most interesting question in all of the universe. Does God exist? Did he make everything? Because maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you believe that, oh, I don't know, maybe it was just all an accident and you just appeared here by accident. Everything's an accident. Okay, but if it's not an accident and it was done on purpose, that is astounding. That is crazy to say like, you've been living your life one way, but perhaps you're actually created to do something. Like you have a mission on this planet. Like you are part of a story that God's been writing since the beginning of time and he has a plan for your life. That, that would be the most exciting thing to discover. And it's actually what made C.S. Lewis become a Christian. C.S. Lewis was a scholar. He wrote, uh, he actually spent time at Oxford University as a professor, but he also wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was really good friends with the guy, J.R.R. Tolkien. And he would often take walks with him in a wooded path. And as they were taking this, this walk, remember J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote Lord of the Rings. They were discussing different things and C.S. Lewis wasn't a Christian. They both fought in a world war. And as they were just walking and talking, uh, C.S. Lewis talking about the myth of Christianity, J.R.R. Tolkien says to him, yeah, but what if this myth is true? Like all the stories that you know, every single one about there's a damsel in distress, but then there's a hero that comes and it seems like the hero's losing, but suddenly he revives and then he, he wins and it's a happy ever, ever, ever after. Imagine ever, ever, ever. I just made that up. Imagine, if you will, if there actually once upon a time, like what if the fact that all of us are really interested in stories is actually a clue that once upon a time, there actually was a true myth, that it actually happened. And all of us are so interested in these stories because we want to know what story we are a part of. And this is what C.S. Lewis says here in his own words. He says, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us the same way as the others, but with this tremendous, tremendous difference that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth where the others are men's myths. In other words, that pagan stories are God expressing himself through the minds of poets using such images as he found there, while Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things. I mean, if that's true, that's gotta be one of the most exciting things to discover. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 puts it beautifully. It says this, it says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came in to eradicate sin, to eradicate death, the problems that plague us constantly in our universe, in our world. Now, what if you're sitting there tonight and you're thinking something like, well, Alan, that sounds nice. Sounds like a great story, but I just don't believe that. I don't buy that. I actually had a conversation with someone the other day. I was taking a voice class in the city, not for singing, for acting. And as I was leaving, I was having a conversation with one of the classmates, and he was asking me, so you're a pastor, what's the difference between a pastor and a priest? 
And as we're discussing different things, he says to me, well, that's, that's great. You know, I think religion is very useful in society. It does a lot of good things, some bad things, but overall, I think people should believe wherever is that, whatever it is that they want to believe because it helps people out. And what I said to him is, I'm sorry, but like, I'm not believing in Christianity because it's useful. I want to believe it because it's true. I don't want to be under some delusion. Imagine, imagine you're sick and you go to a doctor. And as you go to this doctor, you're like, oh, I'm having these symptoms. I have this cough and just like I'm coughing off blood sometimes. And I feel like I'm dying. What do you think I should do? And the doctor says, there, there, son. All you have to do, or daughter, if you're a woman, says, there, there, son or daughter. Anything you buy, go to the pharmacy, anything you buy, it's fine. It'll work. You don't want to hear that. Who want to hear that? Like, you're a terrible doctor. You're telling me anything I take will be fine? I might die if I take that advice. If that's true, if we aren't willing to accept relativism when it comes to medicine, then why would we accept it when it comes to the most important question of life, which is, why am I put on this earth? What was the reason for which I was created? Is there a God? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? A lot of people say, well, you know what? I believe that truth is relative. It's true for me, and it's not true for you, or it could be true for you, and it's not true for me. But everyone knows deep down inside that there is something such as truth, absolute truth. To deny it is to actually affirm it, because by saying there's no such thing as absolute truth, you're saying something truthful. So it's contradictory. Beyond that, to say that truth is relative is unlivable. None of you would go to your teacher after you failed a test and they give you a zero on your quiz or your test, whatever. You bring it up to them and you say, very sincerely, I believe I got 100. Like, great, I'm glad that you're deluded in believing that. But the fact is, you got a zero. No one actually believes that in real life. Case in point, earlier this year, everyone remembers hashtag the dress. Is it? Exactly. You're groaning for one reason. Because people would divide their families. People would just like be so mad and argue with everybody over whether the dress is blue or black and black, blue and black and white and gold. One of the, the other choices. And people are so divided. But you, here's one thing. No one was satisfied in saying this. I don't believe there's any answer to the question. No one was satisfied with that. And here's the thing I would ask. If we believe that there are real answers to simple everyday problems, then why do we neglect truth in regards to the most important questions of life? If we can be so, so passionate about stupid questions, we should be more passionate about the big questions. But I would say is what actually happens is the reason why we refuse to accept the truth is because of pride. It's because of pride. Once again, it goes down to, if I've been living my life in one direction for so long, I don't want to really believe that I've been doing that wrongly. I don't want to believe that I've been living my life in vain, pursuing something that really can't fulfill me. And so people would rather be ignorant than actually discover the truth. But that is a sad reality. I would say this. A wise thing to do is to, when you don't know the answer, you suspend judgment. In other words, if you don't have enough information to make a decision on some uh, questions, you just decide that, you know what, until I get more information, 
I'm going to suspend judgment. I'm not going to make a decision. Just like if you're at a dinner table and you don't know anything about sports, like me, I don't really know anything about football, and there's people that love football and they're just all talking together and they're talking about a terrible trade that one team made over another. And as they're passionately talking about this, you, like you can do one of two things, right? You can stay there silently and just sit there awkwardly waiting for them to move on to another subject. Or you can open up your mouth and reveal that you're stupid and you know nothing about the subject. Sometimes I do that. But by doing that, you are making a decision that isn't, doesn't have any rationale behind it. You know, by agreeing or disagreeing with people who you've just heard at the table and you know nothing about football, you haven't been able to make a judgment. And so you're just kind of going off of the cuff. But the wise thing would, would be to do some research, go home, and before you make a decision, you make sure that you know what you're saying. In the same way, when it comes to the question of God, if you don't know if there's a God, that's fine but be willing to look at the evidence rather than jump to conclusions. And so many people are just like, I don't believe that God exists. I don't believe Jesus is God. Why not? Have you examined scripture? Have you read the Bible? Have you like found evidence that's contrary to the existence of God? Well, no, I just don't feel like there, there's any good evidence out there. Well, that's a different question because we can talk about it, have a conversation. So let me give you three hard questions that I believe that only Christianity can answer, and then we'll be done with our evening. Three hard questions. Number one, what happens to you when you die? What happens to you when you die? Number two, what is the remedy for guilt? What is the remedy for guilt? And thirdly, how does one find fulfillment? So what happens to you when you die? What is the remedy for guilt and how does one find fulfillment? So first of all, what happens to you when you die? According to LifeWay research in 2014, two-thirds, that's 67% of Americans, believe that heaven is a real place. Now that doesn't mean that just because the majority believes it that it's true, but it should give us pause to ask ourselves the question, why is it that so many people believe that when they when they die, they either go to heaven or they go to hell. Why is it that there's death in the first place? What is the meaning behind our lives and what is the meaning behind death? When I was in high school, I had um, a friend who was talking to a girl and they'd only been talking, they weren't officially dating. And as they'd been talking, one day she had a really bad headache. She went to bed and she never woke up. She had a brain aneurysm. And I remember talking to my friend, and it was like one of the harder weeks of my high school years. And although I wasn't really that close with her, I was watching a friend that I was really close with go through a really, really hard time. And I myself was crying. Like I called my youth pastor on the phone, and I just cried. I didn't even know, I didn't even know what to say. And I pray that you never have an experience like that. But if you have, then you know what I'm about to say next. There's something about death that makes you feel like it really was never meant to be this way. When people die, you don't feel like, well, you know what? This is just what happens. It's all just an accident. We live and we die. It all happens to everybody. But there's something about death that's just so wrong. You feel like something's stolen from you. It doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are. No matter what happens, you feel like there's something wrong about death. And we all intuitively know that there's something wrong and broken in this world. When you see ISIS killing people and you see the suicide bombings, when you see children 
as fighters for ISIS, or you see these things in the world, school shootings. There's something within all of us that says there is something wrong with this world. And there, ne there needs to be a solution. No one is satisfied in saying, well, this is just the way that the world is. We all want to know what the answer is. Well, I believe that only Christianity provides the answer to why we die and how we can live again. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So here's the thing, that God, once upon a time, he created the world. And he created people good. He created the earth good. It was very good. And in his good creation, one good thing he created was free will. All of us have the ability to make choices. But the free will decision to choose right means you have the ability to also choose wrong. So, way back when, Adam and Eve had the decision to either listen to the Lord and follow his commands or do their own thing, and that's what they chose to do, and that's called sin. Anytime we deviate from God's plan from our life and we do what is imperfect instead of what his perfect plan is, that is called sin. And sin also, not only does it offend God, but it hurts people around us. And so because of sin, because we broke ourselves, we broke the good life that he gave us, and we used it for, for purposes other than the plan he had, instead of using it to, to flourish and using it to cultivate the land, we used it selfishly so that people would look upon us in our glory rather than the king of the universe. And because of that, things began to die. But here's the thing, maybe you never thought about this before. If God did not allow us to die, there would be no possibility of forgiveness and no possibility of resurrection. Because once you've broken something, it's not like you can just fix it and say, oh, it's all better. I mean, just take any valuable thing that you have. Let's say that you have some valuable vase and then you just broke it and you bring it to the repair shop. You're like, oh, we're going to fix it up. You glue it up and you put it back together. It's not really the same, is it? Even if you bought a different vase, it's not the same. You want the same vase that you had before it was broken. And in the same way, if you had this thing called life and you ruined it, even if you say, I'm going to atone for it, I'm going to make it up to you, you still owe God for the original life that he gave you. And so by God allowing us to die, it gives the opportunity for rebirth, for Jesus' life to come down and for him to take our sin upon the cross because that's what he did. So God gave us the ability to choose heaven or hell. And this is how. Seeing sinners all over the earth, not just some people, but everybody's a sinner. We all make mistakes. We all do our own thing. We're not following God at all. He says, oh man, this is the problem. If everyone's a sinner, that means all of us are worthy of judgment. All of us deserve to go to hell for all of eternity. Because if he just let sinful people like us that sometimes make mistakes go to heaven, then heaven would be just like earth, wouldn't it? People that basically, like you and me, are basically good, but sometimes we mess up, and the whole thing would be just like everything else. But he said, if the standard for going to heaven is perfection, I'm going to send my son Jesus into the world to die for your sins. And all we have to do is receive his free gift of salvation to say, I cannot go to heaven based on my own good works. 
None of us can. And we owe God for the things that we've done wrong. And by accepting that free gift, his life becomes our life. And he looks upon us just like he looks upon his son Jesus, who lived that perfect life that we couldn't live and died the perfect death that we should have died. And that's what we have to receive. And, and one day, all will be remade. Creation itself will be renewed. And we can go to heaven with him in eternity and have joy and be free of sorrow, be free of death, be free of pain for the rest of eternity together with him. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, it says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Because when Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to death so that any wound that you experience in this life is only temporary. Second question, what is the remedy for guilt? What is the remedy for guilt? If I ask each and every one of you to take time to remove the distractions of life, if some of you maybe late at night weren't listening to music as you tried falling asleep, or you were just alone for a long time and you had a lot of time to yourself, all of us know deep down inside there are things that we wish that we could escape. It's something called guilt. Everybody on this planet knows that they've done bad things. And not just some bad things. The more you think about it, the more that you realize, man, I'm just a terrible person. And even when I try to do the right thing, I go about it the wrong way. And I have the wrong motivations. We all have done things that we regret. And a lot of times what we do in order to cover that up is we try to fill our minds with other things. Just run away from the distractions or just be away from those people that we've hurt or people that make us feel guilty because of our shame and of the things that we do. In the same way, we have sinned against an infinitely holy God and therefore we deserve infinite punishment. Now maybe you're saying, well, what if I don't believe in God? Well, if God is real, your lack of belief doesn't mean a lack of offense. You don't have to believe in God and him exist for you to offend a real existing God, whether or not you believe it. Now, if God is not real, I would say this, and this is the scarier option. If God does not exist, listen very carefully, there's no possibility of forgiveness. That means each wrong that you've ever done, that person you've offended, the things that you wish you could take back, there's no possibility that you could ever be redeemed. All of it's in vain. And all you can do is bury or hide your guilt. But the reverse is true. If it's the case that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he can wash your sins away, that means your conscience can be clear. Like the Bible says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You could be the worst sinner on the planet and Jesus died for you and loves you. In fact, it says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Some of us think like, if I can only get my act together, maybe God will accept me. Well, you see, at your very worst, God died for you. And there are things that you've done wrong you probably don't even recognize, and God died for those sins too. We're a lot worse off than we think we are. And yet God loves us all the more. Thirdly and finally, how does one find fulfillment? How does one find fulfillment? Many of you may have been on Route 1 before, and there's a bridge that says in big, bold letters, it says, Trenton makes and the world takes. 
Trenton makes, the world takes. This slogan was invented by a guy named S. Roy Heath in the early part of the 20th century. And the idea is that they want to promote this idea that Trenton supplies the needs of the entire world. But the original version was this. The world takes and Trenton makes. In other words, I think that's a good kind of illustration of how the world treats all of us human beings. That the world demands our allegiance, our efforts, our sweat, everything we can muster, and leaves you with nothing. So that you're always a machine. The world doesn't care about you. They just want things from you. Your trophies, your achievements, your grades, your academics. And so we often will sweat to pacify the world and its desires. And so I mentioned this before, but all of us are living for something. We're all passionate about something. But how do you know the thing that you're passionate about is the thing that can really satisfy you, really fulfill you? Fill in the blank with anything. What is your dream? The one thing if you're like, if I could just have this, my life would be complete. Is there a relationship? If I could just be with that person, my life would be complete. Well, here's the problem. If you made them to be God, you're going to crush them with your expectations because they can never be God. And beyond that, if you believe that that person is a fulfillment of your dreams, number one, they're going to disappoint you because they're not perfect. They're going to do things wrong. And number two, what happens when they leave you? What happens when they cheat on you? Or let's just be very human. What happens when they die? Not saying die early, but like people are human. They're going to die eventually. What happens when that person is taken away from you? Here's what happens. You're devastated because you put all your hopes and dreams in that one person, in that one relationship. You see it all the time, don't you? You see the, the couple that all they do is spend time with each other. They don't even hang out with their friends anymore. You try calling them like, hey, let's hang out. Like, sorry, I got to hang out with my girlfriend. And as they do that, it's just like, like, come on. Like, I used to be your friend. We used to, we used to hang out. What happens when that couple breaks up? It's like they've lost everything. It's truly because they put all of their investment in the other person when they're never meant to be fulfilled by somebody else. What about money, pursuing money? There are people who have left the youth group because Friday nights they get a job and they get busy and Sundays they need to work too because they need to make a lot of money. Well, how much money is enough money? Apparently, there is no measure for how much money you can make and it'll be enough money. Because no matter how much money you make, there's always a little bit more and there's other people around you. I was talking to this girl um, who went to Cornell University and she posted on Facebook not too long ago, don't want to, you know, it's nothing bad, but she was mentioning how upset she was that people at Cornell University are looking down at other people based on their major. Like, oh, you're not a prestigious major. Like, we're at an Ivy League school. Like, isn't this enough? But apparently not, because people are always comparing themselves with other, other people, whether it's money, whether it's academics. You'll never be at a point, like, you, know, you guys know that I do rock climbing all the time. And there's one thing that this one person said to me, which I still believe to this day is like maybe the wisest thing I ever heard in rock climbing. It's this, you're never going to be strong enough. And you're like, well, as long as I climb at this level, as long as I do this one thing, then I'll be good. But there's always this like, but I've achieved that, and now what's the next step? You're always looking to the next thing because it's never able to really satisfy us. Whereas Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Here's the difference. If your identity is in Christ, 
if your identity is in Jesus. In other words, if you put your treasures in heaven, where God is and not on the earth, then even when all the things in the world fall apart, like we're living in a dream world. We're living in America. Oh my goodness. Like if we were living in any other nation that was poorer than us, we would be not talking about these things. We would not be talking about like what, like what school I want to go to. Cause like maybe if you grew up in a poor nation, a third world country, you wouldn't have the opportunity to do that. You wouldn't be talking about like what sports you want to play. Cause maybe in a different country, third world country, you would not have the opportunity to do that. And a lot of those countries are seeing revival. They're seeing people come to Jesus in mass numbers because they don't have all the distractions. So for us, what is it going to take for us to set our eyes on what is important? Or will it take something catastrophic, like the thing that we love to be taken away for us to focus on that which really matters? Because if you put your treasures in heaven, it doesn't matter what happens on earth because your treasure is secure. Because it's where God is. And so even if you lose a relationship, you're hurt for sure, but you're not devastated. Let's say that you lose your job that you worked so hard to get. You don't get into the school that you, so tried, you tried so hard to get into. You lose the friends. It doesn't matter what you lose because you're content because you have Jesus. You could be, you have lost all your friends, all your family hates you, but you're not lonely because you have Jesus and that's the only friend that you really need. And I'm not just making that up. And I too have personally experienced the love of Christ. And many of you know my story. Many of you know that there's been times where I've had panic attacks and for years I was struggling. I couldn't even drive. I was thinking about it today as I was driving, like driving for like a half hour one way, driving a half hour another way. And like it wasn't until I was about probably 22 that I could drive by myself anywhere farther than an hour without me freaking out, feeling like the world is crumbling and I'm gonna die. And like I was just driving today. I was like, man, like God is so good and faithful. I can do simple thing like driving all fine, you know? But what's cool about this, I've experienced the love of Christ who's gotten me through situations where I've had things happen. I've had times where like, I felt like things were being ripped from me. Times where I wanna pull out my hair in frustration because I've had those moments. But then God reminded me that he's still there for me. He loves me, he has a plan for me. And here's the good news. If God exists, then this verse is true. That all things work together for good to those that love God, to those called according to his purpose. Let me tell you something, everyone look up here. Everyone on earth wants to believe that. And they say it too. Everything happens for a reason. But if you don't believe in God, where do you get that from? There's no guarantee that things work out for a reason. It's all an accident. You have no guarantee. That's like walking into Las Vegas and saying, well, someone's, about to, someone's bound to win, so it's probably going to be me. You walk in and there's no guarantee. There is no guarantee that you're going to win. But if there's someone who's looking out for you. If there's someone guaranteeing, someone working behind the scenes, then it doesn't matter what you go through in this life, you have the guarantee that Jesus loves you and he's there for you. And not only do you get heaven, but you get earth thrown in as well. I'm gonna read you one more verse and we're done. Luke chapter 11, verse 31, it, Jesus said this. He said, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. This is what Jesus was saying. He says, listen, like there, there's people from all over the world that used to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. But this generation is basically condemned because you see me, you have access to me, and you don't believe. 
There are people in third world countries that believe in Jesus. And yet we, who have access to maybe more information than any other generation, are some of the most distracted people on the face of the earth. I mean, at some point in time, we have to ask ourselves the hard question. Does God exist? Is Jesus God? And it's not a matter of like, well, I live in the middle of the Aborigines or I'm just, I don't know anyone and and therefore I can't talk to anyone. I have no access to God. We have access. We have the opportunity and we have the information. So the question is, will we choose to walk in ignorance or will we choose to walk in truth? So I would pose that question to you this evening as we close. Would you make that decision to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but over the next couple of weeks, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to see whether this thing is legit. And we haven't even gone to all the other religions, exploring all the other things. But listen, if you want to have a conversation afterwards, I'd be glad to have that with you. But next week, we're going to learn about the meaning of life, why we're put here on this planet. We're going to be talking about love in the following weeks, the true definition of love. But what you find is as you, maybe you felt this tonight even, as we're reading the scripture, it's like, I don't know what it is, but there's something about this that just seems right. I would just ask that you would pray to God tonight. Maybe if you're watching this online, that you would pray, God, if you're out there, and if you are real, I want to know, and would you show yourself to me?